Welcome everyone to the Towards Wholeness podcast, where we seek to offer you steps that you can take in your journey towards spirit, soul, and body wholeness. I have to tell you that I'm really excited about our guest today, Charles Moore, because the times in my life when God has moved me significantly toward wholeness have come about as the result of encountering what I would call prophetic voices. These are voices that kind of show up in your life, uh, and they come from people who are living outside of the mainstream of our culture in ways that challenge a lot of our thinking. The challenge can be regarding politics, regarding economics, regarding individualism. And, you know, God used prophets in the Old Testament to challenge the prevailing idols that were present in the nation of Israel. And the idols needed to be destroyed in order that people could live into the wholeness that God was inviting them toward clear back in the covenant made with Abraham so that group of people could shine as light. And I just love when I'm able to encounter people in my life who move me toward wholeness by virtue of their prophetic witness. And the person who's with us today has done that in my life, along with the community to which he belongs. His name is Charles Moore, and Charles lives with his wife, Leslie, in Denver, Colorado, where he's seeking to start a new Bruderhof community venture. And we will hear more about the Bruderhof communities in just a moment. He teaches, he pastors, he's a contributing editor to The Plow magazine. There's a quarterly journal that I read cover to cover because I have never yet encountered an article that doesn't move me, challenge my thinking, encourage me in some way. We'll put a link to Plow Publishing in the notes here so that you can subscribe to Plow as well. I'd encourage everybody to do that. He has a new book coming out in 2021. It was intended to be out in 2020, but it's coming out in 2021 regarding the Sermon on the Mount, but presently also has authored and edited a book entitled Call to Community, which is really an anthology of people who have lived in community. And we'll be talking about community in our next podcast, in particular with Charles, because uh, we're going to do two with him. So Charles, welcome. It is really a privilege to have you with us today on the Toward Wholeness podcast. Thank you, Richard. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you, and I look forward to uh, our discussion. You know, the little bit that we have talked on the phone, you told me that you attended seminary, and then you became a seminary professor, and then something happened in your life that created an upheaval and caused you to make an especially big move that has led to your present situation. So, I'm kind of interested in the evolution of your calling, if we could say it that way, because that's really what we're talking about today. How do we continue to move toward the life to which God is calling us? Okay, well, that evolution is as many twists and turns, and it actually began uh, prior to seminary. I had a very powerful experience, um, an encounter with Christ that really turned my life upside down when I was 17. and and um, when I got to college, you know, I was really just trying to figure out what what does it mean to affirm the lordship of Christ in my life. And I read a quote from St. Augustine that said, if Christ is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. 
you know, I, that just really impacted me. So, uh, you know, I very early on was trying to figure out what, what does it mean to make Christ Lord over everything? Uh, one of the first books I read uh, was from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and uh, a friend in the church I was attending just was prompted by the Spirit and said, you need to read this book. And uh, most of it was over my head, but it impacted my life that somehow the Lordship of Christ had something to do with not just being Lord over my own personal life, but it involved um, a life together with others who were like-minded believers. And that seed just kept growing in me. And so by the time I went to seminary, and I went to seminary not to become a pastor, but to, to better understand my faith, you know, I, it just became more and more evident to me that, that something was missing in the traditional structure of the church, despite the dedication and many great things. What the church was and what life together was somehow did not come together. And uh, so for quite a number of years, even as a doctoral student, I was trying to figure out what does it mean for Christ to be Lord in a corporate sense amongst a people. That propelled me to start living in a community in downtown Denver. Um, I was a doctoral student at the time, married within that community uh, uh, with my wife, Leslie, and then returned back to the seminary to teach. This question of what does it mean to be the church, not just go to church, involved with the church, but what does it mean to be the body of Christ together? This just continued to drive me further exploration and and, um, seeking. And even though um, my teaching ministry at the seminary was bearing some good fruit and we were in a little community, we we hit a crossroads. Unfortunately, our, our community attempt, after four or five years, we, we realized that not everybody was on the same page. Not everyone was really bought in. People had different agendas. And uh, we had kind of agreed to, to let it die. But then my wife and I looked at each other and said, okay, now what? Um, do we continue on the traditional path? Or do we really believe that God's plan was to call out a people and that that people would reflect his lordship, that they would be a demonstration plot of the kingdom. And that's when the Bruderhof community became a viable live option for us, so to speak. We had known about the Bruderhof, but um, we felt compelled and called by God to leave everything. So we left everything, um, quit teaching. We left everything we knew in Denver and moved east to become a part of that community. That's amazing. The courage, I guess, to cut off the traditional cultural infrastructure and move into a community, there, there must have been some, like a high degree of dissonance for your dissatisfaction with things as they are. Or on the other hand, was it terrifying to cut off that infrastructure and identity? You know, that's a, that's a really thought-provoking question. We were extremely dissatisfied, and it was not because there weren't good churches. In fact, we never had a bad church, but it dawned on us how fragmented our lives were. You know, there's many different variations of meeting together. The bottom line was is that we had our life as a couple, and everybody else had their own life, and we'd get together and we would report about each other's lives to one another. And that was not the kind of life I 
saw described in in Acts chapter 2, where they shared a common life together. We were in each other's homes. Nothing belonged to anyone. It was an integrated, shared life, and that was missing. And I was extremely frustrated of the compartmentalizing, the atomizing, uh, the hyper-individualistic understanding of Christianity that we were experiencing and so there was a deep frustration. On the other hand, um, you know, I was, we were bred, um, we were bred and raised to be individualists. And so to contemplate leaving and then becoming a part of something that was greater than yourself, where you would have to forego just your own personal pursuits, you would have to forego uh, your own self-interest for a common life where, where Jesus and his spirit would be built up. Yeah, that that was terrifying. There was a lot of unknowns, and yet we felt compelled. We had to listen to God, and it was um, what uh, Eberhard Arnold, who kind of founded our community back in 1920, said it was a holy must. We there there was just no other choice. We we had to go in that direction. You know, I'm really interested. I'm glad that you brought up the founder and the hundred year anniversary of the Bruderhof community. There are probably many of us who look at the Bruderhof community from a distance, like I've never, I've never visited one, though I'd like to at some point. But I know enough about it to know that it was born right after World War I. And I've, you know, I've read some of the German theologian Karl Barth, who also had a lot of his theology shaped by the devastation of World War I. As you uh, have now become embedded in the community and are really a leader in the community, starting to found a new community now in Denver. Can you just kind of give us a sense of the roots of this community? Like, how did it how did it grow up out of the ashes of the first World War, and what were the shaping ideologies that made that happen or that allowed that to happen? Sure. Well, you know, it's there's some really interesting parallels uh, between 1920. In our day today, so yeah, uh, World War One was catastrophic, but it was uh, spiritually catastrophic for many people, especially younger people, who were aghast at um, uh, how the church baptized the war, uh, how the church justified the grave disparities between rich and poor, the religious hypocrisy, uh, the formal nature of Christianity without the Spirit. And so there was just a growing hunger and desire, and, and many just left the church. Um, they were wanderers, a bit like in a, the hippie time in, 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 their, in the 60s. Many tried to gravitate towards natural things and creation, wanted authenticity, what, what was genuine. And out of that was born our community. And our community really rested on and still rests on the kernel of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. There was a conviction that the Sermon on the Mount uh, was meant to, to be lived out corporately together. It was a manifesto of the kingdom um, here and now, and that the good news was not just the saving of souls for some afterlife, but the good news was that J- Jesus could transform every facet of life here and now. And that was really the task of the church to be God's new society. So, out of that, uh, a, a small fledgling group began. Eventually, 
uh, it grew, not by leaps and bounds, but by the time Hitler came to power, it was large enough to be a threat to Hitler. One of the things that marks our community life is an absolute commitment to loving enemies, uh, to nonviolence. And since um, the young men in the community refused to fight for Hitler, the community became a target and eventually was persecuted out of out of Germany. And then uh, the community found asylum in, in England until the war broke out. And then there was a German scare in England, much like the Japanese scare here. And the British authorities basically said that the German members would have to be interned um, or else the community would have to find some other country, which um, eventually they all moved together at the outbreak of the war to Paraguay, which was the only country at, uh, at the time that would accept German and English Christians as a community. Um, and then since then, the community has grown. It came to the United States in the early 50s. And so currently, we have almost 30 communities, some as large as 300, some as small as 15, in several different continents. It's an amazing work. And in fact, I love that embedded in that story is this notion of being a refugee and and having no home, because that too is in the ethic of Jesus in a way, isn't it? I mean, he, yeah. he, he, he I remember Jesus saying, I have nowhere to lay my head. And so uh, the Bruderhof community has lived along those lines. Now, when you talk about the nonviolence and the absolute loving of enemies, that speaks to a little bit of the politics of the Bruderhof community. And it's always been intriguing to me since I've become familiar with you guys that you seem to defy the polarized politics of American culture completely. When I read your works, there's this strident commitment to addressing systemic racism and caring for the environment and calling people to simplicity and caring for the poor and those who are on the margins. And at the same time, you have a very conservative ethic around uh, sexuality, protecting human life in the womb. And, and so there's things about you that would align you with the left at some points and align you with the right and oppose the left and right at some point. Can you just speak to that and how you view the Christian's call to political engagement in light of the way you guys are living? Well, that's a, um, a big question. Um, so maybe we could kind of parse that out a bit. So um, we're neither left nor right because we do not believe that the state is God's apparatus for furthering his kingdom. Uh, it may have ameliorating effects on um, the wreckage of sin and evil, but um, we're about a different kingdom. And so if you picture a, a horizontal line, you may have left and right. We're about the vertical now, what I mean by vertical, it's not a spiritualization of the, of the gospel, but we allow our allegiance to God's kingdom to penetrate what we're about. It's not the um, uh, scripts that are put forth or that are pushed on people by the world's powers that define our discussion. It's God's kingdom. We, we like to think of the church as an embassy of God's kingdom. And our task is to represent the interests of God and his values, his principles, and his ways of 
furthering and advancing his rule and reign on earth. And that's through a people who are gladly submitted and surrendered to him. And, and it's the way of service. It's the way of powerlessness. It's the, it's the opposite of the ways and means of the world, which uses carnal methods of coercion and force and control uh, in one fashion or another. So it's not that we're all political. We, we really believe that the church is God's politics. We together, as a corporate expression of who Christ is, his body, um, we are to demonstrate what living under King Jesus is like, and it will have economic implications, uh, educational imp- uh, implications, social, personal, every facet of life is covered. And we're called to demonstrate that. And in a way, not to remove ourselves from society, but in a way that that people can see justice being practiced and not just hearing people demand justice. Uh, they can see and uh, what shalom and, and peace looks like amongst the people, not just that people who are um, advocating for nonviolence and peace in society. So they, they have some kind of demonstration before them. So in this way, we're, we're neither left nor right, nor are we all political. So the second thing I'd like to say is that um, even though um, we're neither left nor right, and we're not political in the partisan sense, we do have a politic. And, in the, and as we demonstrate God's politics, we are called to engage this world. We, we want to work for the common good, and, and we will come alongside others who we feel are working for the betterment of others. But we, we're careful to only use the means that Jesus gave us and not the means of this world, which would use pressure, coercion, control, manipulation. We're not about uh, power but about serving, taking up the towel and, and serving those um, in need. Charles has written a great article, I'll let everybody know, entitled In Search of a City, and I'll reference that in the, in the program notes so that you can read that article that speaks in greater depth to what he's just said. It's interesting to me, Charles, that uh, Jesus didn't speak much about politics, but he did say, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, referring to taxation, the Roman Empire, of course, was not a democracy. People didn't vote to determine who the next Caesar would be. We, for just the reality of our situation, we live in, in a time when we're tasked with choosing leaders. How does your community interface with that responsibility or privilege, or do they? Yeah, I, you know, there's, I guess, a diversity. Our community... We, we have decided to allow each person, according to their conscience, to decide at, at what level of engagement when it comes to the political apparatus, let's say the um, privilege of voting. So uh, many don't vote in national elections, but might vote lo- more locally because uh, it seems to be more personal. But uh, there are some who don't vote at all. We don't focus on that because, you know, voting is, is minimal. When it comes to actually furthering the common good, we like to invest ourselves in working with those in authority, whether it's uh, local or higher, and try to come along and work on projects 
that actually affect the, the common good? That's a great answer. And I do think that we see evidence in the present moment, the levels of fear and stress and anxiety attending our current election and political process. And it makes me feel like, in general, we're putting way too much hope in the outcome of an election as a form of, and I put this in quotes, but as a form of salvation, you know, like, oh, what's going to save our culture? Oh, well, we need, you know, we need a regime change or we need to preserve what's there. And both sides have conflated the stakes to the point where I go, man, I take great hope and comfort in recognizing that the kingdom of God has no dependency on who's in power. And that's one thing we take away from the New Testament, isn't it? Absolutely. I I think we have false identities as Christians. I think uh, too many of us are getting our our identity defined by something outside of Christ. And uh, we believe that our identity has to be in Christ, that the narrative, the script that we are called to live out, is the 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 one um, that is revealed in scriptures, which is the advancement of God's kingdom on earth. And how does God advance his rule and reign? It's through his people, not through the state. And do we really believe that the church is actually uh, the key to the world's salvation? And yeah. I don't mean the church as a religious institution where we perform certain religious acts, but that um, we as a people actually live out the fullness of the gospel. And by doing that, we are a light, and that light is what that brings salvation to, to the world. And that, I mean, in the end, that's the only hope, isn't it? I mean, we can't, uh, if we place our trust in any form of Caesar as the answer with a definite article, it's a form of idolatry, and it becomes a worship of the state, re- regardless of whether you're on the left or the right. So I thank you guys for your shining example toward that end. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you as we, as we wrap this up is, when I think about who's listening to our podcasts, it's going to be people from many, many walks of life, right? Some people who are very urban and working for large multinational corporations and other people who are struggling with poverty, a good number of millennials and Gen Z who are disillusioned with institutional Christianity. But I think one thing that most of our listeners share in common is a desire to continue on a journey toward wholeness so that they can shine as light and be people of hope. And that may, for some, require overcoming institutional disillusionment, stepping into community. It'll be different for every person. But if you were to offer counsel, what can people do to take a next step toward wholeness who are on this journey of faith but disillusioned with Christianity as as it exists? What would you say? I know it's a very generic question, but uh, I would love to hear your response. It's a good question. You can be dissatisfied, you can be disillusioned, you can be frustrated, you can be angry at the way things are. But I think we have to point the finger at ourselves first. Are we taking steps? Do we really want to take steps? Which invariably, to follow Christ, will mean that we're going to have to step out of the status quo. We are going to have to live 
at some level contrary to the dictates of this world, to the pattern of this world. You know, we can complain and so forth, but are we actually taking steps? And those steps may not be very big. They may not necessarily be the final step or final answer. But if we're not willing to make changes where we can, then I think all those things that I mentioned that, you know, the disillusionment and so forth will turn into cynicism. It will turn into resentment and it will um, invariably, of course, lead to a loss of faith. And so I, I wish we as Christians together could speak honestly, where are we disillusioned together? And then together, how can we respond in greater faithfulness? That's a great summary statement and great conclusion to our first podcast with Charles. I want to thank you for taking the time today, Charles. And uh, I know we're going to chat again and offer people some insights into the nuts and bolts of what it looks like to live in community. But my prayer for those of us listening today is that having heard what we've heard, we will engage in honest conversation about our disillusionment and continue to ask God for the next step. And I pray God's blessing on each of you as you take those those steps. Thanks again, Charles, for joining us. Thank you. It's a great honor. All right. We'll chat soon.